Hello and welcome to the CU20 podcast. We are a group of Christians who live in Montreal. We meet together on Wednesday nights to discuss issues of faith in Jesus Christ and how to serve Him in the modern world. We hope that you enjoy today's podcast, which is a sermon from our series on holiness. So we begin, not begin, we continue throughout the series tonight looking at part three of our series on holiness. And so if you haven't been following along, what we're looking at is a, I guess, looking at the different avenues through which we can grow in holiness. And if we want to pursue a life of holiness, what does that look like and what should be the methodology that we use and the markers that we can look at to see whether or not it's, it's, we are growing in holiness. And so we keep coming back to uh, the same, the same ver- chapter and verse, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 to 25. And so if you have your Bible, I encourage you to do that. But when you look through the Bible, uh, there is certain sort of emphatic statements that are made. And an emphatic statement is something that, it's a, it's, it's a declaration of something that is made with a sense of force. You know, the Bible states things that it really wants you to pay attention to. And the most, the single most emphatic statement that the Bible makes is that God is holy. And the reason that we know that is not only because it crops up everywhere in Scripture. The holiness of God is something that is reiterated over and over again through all the different genres of writing and all kinds of self-declarations made by God Himself uh, angelic declarations, the, the declarations of the psalmists, of Christ, of the New Testament writers, all throughout Scripture we see the holiness of God emphasized. But also we have the single most emphatic statement of the Bible is the holiness of God. And that is that, that statement, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we can call it that because of the way that the Hebrew language works. It works in a sense of the repetition is supposed to give emphasis to something. I was speaking to Shirley today, and Shirley was saying it works much the same in Indonesian, uh, the language that she grew up speaking. If you want to uh, say something uh, in the plural sense or in the emphatic sense, you have to say it twice. So the, the example she uses, like, if you look up the sky and there's a cloud, you say cloud in Indonesian, not just in English. Say cloud, but if it's a lot, it's cloudy. There's lots of clouds. You say cloud, cloud. You just say it twice. There's no word for pluralizing it. It's just say the word twice, cloud, cloud. And so that's kind of cute and cool. Uh, but Hebrew works much the same way, but in terms of emphasis. And so when you see Jesus saying, "Truly, truly, I say to you," this, he's saying, "Pay attention to what I'm about to say. I'm really, really emphasizing." See, I just did it. I'm really emphasizing something to you here. Now, so when it says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, it's the only time you see a thrice repeated thing. So the emphasis is all the more powerful as a result. We need to have our attention grabbed by the holiness of God. It's designed to do so, and it certainly works. We need to get uh, our mind wrapped around the idea that God is holy. And it emphasizes its holiness in the sense of saying that God is separate 
God is unlike anything else in this world. No other God that may be uh, sort of preached about that, that other world religions would speak of. No other force in this world, no other thing that you may deem worthy of worship could possibly compare to the otherness, the completely a separateness of God, for he is so far different from everything else. Not only that, but also the transcendence of God. He is not only other and different, he is above all other creation, because he is creator and uniquely and solely creator. He is also holy in his purity, and that is another way of emphasizing the holiness of God, is in his moral absolute purity. And so in speaking of God, we need to understand that holiness is a key attribute. No, nowhere in the Bible to say, you know, love, love, love is the Lord God Almighty, or mercy, 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 or anything else. All of these things are absolutely true. But holiness is the one that is given the most emphasis in Scripture, and that bears weight. We need to understand something about that. And the holiness of God is something that comes up in this passage that we read together too. So 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13, says this, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, let, live out your time as foreigners here with reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass and their glory is like the flowers of the field. Grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Why don't we pray together? Lord, we thank you for this time we get to spend in your word. And we don't want to miss this tonight, Lord. So may you grasp our attention fully. May you help us to not let go. May you help us to really understand your holiness. And as an extension, our call to holiness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The key statement I want to look at tonight is found kind of in the middle of what we were speaking there, where it says, be holy because I am holy. This is something that is repeated. He's referencing an Old Testament scripture here. But we see that the holiness of God is something that he desires for us to share, in a sense, for us to be able to walk in holiness too, kind of as his children. As members of God's family, the distinctive quality that we are to have that will set us apart, <clears throat> distinguish us as his family members, as his children, is holiness. 
And being shaped by your family is something that we've all already experienced. Who your parents are, who your siblings are, have already had a great influence on your life. I remember as a kid, uh, I had friends who were, uh, had parents who were considerably less uh, strict than my parents. And so I'd go over to their house or I'd be invited to go and do something that was probably just not age appropriate at the time. Like, I remember once I was like 10 and my friend uh, invited me over because they were going to watch Robocop together. I know I just aged myself terribly, but uh, Robocop was like R18. Like you couldn't, it was like really restricted. And my mom was like, no, you can't go and watch that movie. And I was like, but mom, like he gets to do it. And she said to me, I still remember, she said, I don't care what he does. He's not my child. You're my child. And you need to, like, and, and I care about you. I want you to act a certain way. You know, you're a member of this family. And that stuck with me. That sense of, that sense of, uh, we, we're bonded together by principles as well as blood. And it goes spiritually much the same way. When we become part of the family of God, holiness is something that is expected of us because it's an attribute that God has as well. It's the visible evidence of being part of the family of God. The Bible teaches us to look, to, to examine principally your life, to look for holiness, look for obedience to the word of God, uh, conformity to his will as a marker of whether you're born again or not. It also calls for us to look discerningly at the lives of others to see if it's in their life, to see if, whether we should follow them or not. We see that all the way through 1 John. Look at these teachers who are trying to persuade you one way or another. See, do their lives exhibit holiness? If not, then it's, they're not truly saved. They're not truly walking with God. Growth in holiness, in Christ-likeness, are essential characteristics of what it means to be a Christian. They are no way optional. Now, I said growth in holiness. We need to be growing in holiness. I'm not saying that you need to reach a certain level before you count as a Christian. But certainly from the moment you accept Christ, it should be an upward trajectory over time that you're growing in holiness. We can forget that very easily, especially in the modern world today, where for some reason or another we've tended to neglect teaching on holiness, neglect teaching on simply the obedience to the Word of God as a key characteristic of Christianity. We have replaced it instead with a sense of if you believe the right things, that's enough, which is far from the truth. Certainly, right belief, who is Jesus, who is God, you know, how am I saved? Those are key, key things in being a Christian and being an authentic Christian, but it's a narrow part of what is true Christianity. True Christianity is far wider than that. There are three orthos, if you want to think about it. Ortho meaning right. So there's orthodoxy, which is right belief. That's what orthodoxy means. But then there's also orthopraxy, which is right actions. That's also an, an absolutely essential part of true Christianity. And there's orthopathos, right heart attitude, right think, right, uh, I guess attitude is the best way I could think of it. You know, to have love, to have grace, these kinds of things. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy, orthopathos, right heart. Those three together will encompass the wholeness of what it means to live a Christian life. Faith in Christ should clash with your sense of morality. You know, I've certainly from time to time had a sense of understanding. If I follow God, my very idea about what is love and how much I'm willing to love is going to be challenged. Faith should challenge my sense of ego, taking me out of the throne of my life and putting Christ instead. Wrestling with self to know that I need to go Christ's way rather than my own way here. 
If your faith does not clash against your sense of morality, clash against and pierce your inflated ego, then it's not really touching the areas of your life that it should. Many see Christianity today as kind of just like this comfortable couch that you can sit on. A couch that protects you from the hard, unpleasant realities of life because it kind of softens everything. And also, if the couch is, you know, if you kind of want to move a little bit, well, the couch is going to kind of push with you. It's going to conform to your shape. Oh, I'm going to lie this way. Now oh, that's nice. And it, it just kind of like, you know, suits your conveniences. Whatever, however you want to sit, it's going to do its best to make you comfortable. That's not the way that Christianity shouldn't be. It shouldn't be changeable upon our whim. And it shouldn't be simply for our own comfort and, and sense of uh, pleasantness in this world. It's far more than that. John Stott says this, Jesus never concealed the fact that his religion included a demand as well as an offer. Indeed, the demand was as total as the offer was free. Jesus, all the way throughout his ministry, demanded. He, he, he refused to accept someone on anything other than his own terms. If you want to come to Jesus, you have to be willing to, to embrace him as Lord and Savior. Simply a good moral teacher, someone, you know, a half-hearted uh, allegiance to him just simply wouldn't do. And for the last two weeks, we've been looking at the right attitude of, of heart and of mind, the right kind of understandings and affections that we need to foster in terms to actually have a chance of living a life of holiness, kind of developing the habits of mind and heart. And Christ himself helps us in this work. And I want to just briefly touch upon that again so we don't forget it. We we're talking about living a life of holiness, and tonight we're talking about striving after holiness. Let's not forget that Christ helps us through the work of the Holy Spirit every step of the way. And the way that he does this is by bringing the gospel to bear on each and every area of our life and heart, by helping us to remember what it means to be saved by grace, what a privilege it is to know him and to serve him. By bringing all of these amazing things to heart, the Holy Spirit continues to bring to bear the fruit and the weight of the gospel to us that births within us these amazing uh, affections for God, these, these willing desires to go and chase after him. I heard a great metaphor this week. Christianity is, um, you know, we can think of it some, sometimes like, like uh, you're being put in a glider. And I don't know if you've ever been in a glider, but, but what, it, what you need to do is either be really high up already, like on a cliff or whatever it is, or there's a, a winch that can pull you really fast uh, across a, a runway and, you know, like they lift the wings up and you just rock it up into the air. But the, the principle is the same. You, you, kind of, you, you gain elevation very quickly or you start at a great elevation and then it's on you to kind of get to where you're going. And Christianity is not like that. It's not like salvation flings us up into the air and then it's our, our responsibility just to glide our way to heaven as if salvation is that one and done type of thing. Okay, you're saved, now go. Every single day, every single moment, Christ is upholding us. He never lets go of the glider. We continue to be upheld by him. He continues to push us along as we go through, sustained and held all the way by the work of the Spirit. But as that happens, we need to understand that it's very clear in Scripture that it takes hard work. We cannot neglect the idea that even though it is absolutely, you know, the, the, the impetus to do so comes from Christ comes from the Holy Spirit. The love that we need comes from Him. The change of heart it continues daily to come by Him. But it's hard work. It's difficult. And we must be willing to pursue God wholeheartedly. 
There's simply no other way. Verse 14 puts it that way. It says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he called you to be holy, so be holy in all you do. It points out to the fact in that verse that some of our evil desires came from ignorance. It came from a lack of understanding. Now, that is former ignorance. We are no longer ignorant. And because of that, certain things that we used to desire, we shouldn't desire anymore. Or we should have new desires to follow that will counteract the old desires. I know that I, a, lot of my, um, a lot of my terrible decisions have come from ignorance, like fashion choices. And I'm sure all of you are much the same. But when you're a certain age and you think, this, I love it, I'm going to wear it every day. And you buy, in my case, uh, I used to wear like really big Hawaiian shirts because I thought I looked really cool in them. And uh, I look back at those pictures, I'm like, oh my gosh, what was I thinking? And I had way more terrible ones than that that I won't go into right now. Uh, and I'm sure you're all the same. Maybe that can be a good icebreaker question <laughs> for your small groups. What terrible article of clothing did you used to wear thinking you were so cool? But you know, you, you do these things that in the moment seem so right. You're like, this is the thing that's going to make me cool at school. And then you look back and now you're like, that was the most ignorant thing ever. Like, I was so wrong about that. The love of Christ has that power to change our hearts, to wake us up out of that, uh, that ignorance. There's a great uh, kind of book, uh, this is a small book, more like a sermon, I guess, but long, I don't know. Let's call it a book. It's called The Expulsive Power of New Affection by uh, Thomas Chalmers. Uh, it's an amazing book, and it's talking, as the title suggests, the expulsive power of a new affection. This idea of when you gain a new affection for God, it has this expulsive power, it pushes out th things out of your life that used to be the desires that you will let go of now. The love of God should reorient our lives, reorient our loves. And from there, that holiness comes. Now that we've had a taste of what Christ is like, what salvation is like, we've been satisfied, but also we thirst for more. We want more and more of God, and so we begin to live a life of trust and of obedience to Him, because that's the way to be happy, right? That song, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That's true. That's the, the life we're called to, and that is a life of holiness. A life of following after Christ is a life of holiness. To follow after Him means three things. Number one, that we learn from Him. We should always be growing in two ways as Christians, growing in understanding, and growing in holiness. So to follow Christ means, number one, we learn from Him. Number two, we obey His words. Where Jesus tells you to do something, you do it. You step out in faith. You step out in love. And number three, you identify yourself with His cause. Essentially meaning you take yourself off of the driver's seat of your life and you put Him instead. You say, I'm not going to live for my own goals anymore. I'm going to relinquish it to you. That's what it means to follow. And so to do this takes a killing of sin. And the Bible uses, you know, rough, really vicious language. I mean, it talks about our attitude we're supposed to have of indwelling sin in our life. John Owen uh, says this, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. I like that. You know, Jesus speaks about this idea of, you know, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Now, I've, I've argued in the sermon before, I do not believe he's speaking literally at that point. But he certainly is maintaining the figurative force of it. Be vicious about this. 
If you don't be actively working against your pattern of sin in life, it will slowly creep back in and overwhelm you again. So we renounce sin. But more than that, we renounce the underlying principle behind sin, which is living for self, living for my desires, living for my pleasure, for my goals. And we instead give our life over to Christ. We get off the throne, and every day it's a sense of renewing our surrender to Him, saying to Christ, I'm going to live for you today. And if we do this and we take it seriously, then that holiness begins to birth in our life. Holiness meaning distinctiveness. In no culture in the world is Christianity a perfect fit. In every single culture, Christianity will deviate from the norm. You'll be working against culture anywhere in the world if you choose to live an authentic Christian life. And so that distinctiveness, sets that path sets us away, sets us apart from the rest of the people around us. And so Peter uh, speaks about, in verse 17, being exiles. First Peter is written to exiles, to those who are living. They've been thrown out of their land. They've been scattered because of persecution. And now Peter refers to them uh, in verse 17. He says this, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Foreigners also meaning exiles. He's speaking to exiles and he's saying, just embrace it, because that's what you are. You, you are, spiritually speaking, exiles. So the, to live that type of spiritual identity too. Embrace the exile status. Embrace the fact that you're not going to store up treasure for yourself in this earth because you're not made for this earth. Have you ever been on holiday? How stupid would it be if you go somewhere new on holiday and you take all of your life savings with you and then you, 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 you uh, exchange you know, your Canadian dollars for, I don't know, Lebanese dollars? Why would you do that? You're only going to be there for a short amount of time. It would be so stupid to do that. In the same way, if you, if you understand that you're only here for a short amount of time, the treasure that you have, the way that you the work, the way that you set goals, shouldn't be about just the time you spend here. It should be about eternity. Don't set up treasures for yourself here in, on this earth. Set up treasure in the world to come. The second way that we live as foreigners and as exiles is to not assimilate, to resist the cultural flow, to remain distinctive, to know that whatever the sway is of culture, we're not part of that culture. It's not our true identity. Our true identity is Christ. So you are first Christian and second whatever else, Canadian. Or, you know, we're all from different places in the world here. So. But Christian comes first. Everything else is secondary to, to that. So you do, as an exile, you don't assimilate because you're not from here. You're, not, you're from somewhere else. The third one is, do not be unduly weighed down by sorrow for things in this life. You know, you, you know that the things of this world will come to pass. That everything we see is passing away, even now. And so the trials and the difficulties you face, the sorrow that you face, of course, we can be sad about them. We can lament these things. But we do so never with a sense of hopelessness, never with a sense of being undone by grief, because we know there is a hope that this world can never take away. There is something about our lives that should always uh, maintain a view of that hope. And so it doesn't, nothing about it will overwhelm us to the point of desperation. And that's what it means to live as foreigners in this land. And this is what holiness will be. It'll look like that. It's not easy. 
It's not easy to resist the flow of assimilation. It's not easy to, to resist the urge to store up treasures. It's not easy to, to not allow the pressure or the, the sorrow of this life to overwhelm you at times. But when we do so, this is when we're living a holy life. These are long, long held on to habits. They don't die easy. The, the pleasures of this world that we follow for so long, it doesn't die easy. We need to exercise aggressive faith. We need to be willing to exercise firm self-discipline, a cutting off of you know, painful things that we need to be willing to do to relinquish ourselves of the power of sin. A crucifying of the flesh is what Paul speaks about. But that's what a holiness will look like. It's a determination to, to live such a way. And remember that holiness is not only about one area of life. We need to to correct the common error that there's a distinction between secular and spiritual activities. In verse 15, it says that it says all. It says, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. That means everything that we do can be holy. Paul speaks about it in Romans when he says, you know, whether you eat or drink, do so for the glory of God. Something as mundane and simple and commonplace as eating and drinking can be done in such a way that it gives glory to God. So what is left off the table? If something as mundane as that is possible to do in such a way as glorifying God, then everything can be done for the glory of God. And that's what we're called to live. A life of holiness that shows no distinction between secular and spiritual. There are obligations the Bible clearly states for the way in which you are to live with your family, with your co-workers, with your boss, with your state, with the community at large. All over the Bible, it speaks about the obligations we have as believers towards these different relationships. So that means how you work, how you interact with your family, how you interact with the people that you just meet around the street. These are opportunities to exhibit holiness. All of them matter. All of them count to God. And so all of our life is encompassed. Most of you are in school. Some of you are working right now. What, you, what a holiness looks like at this point, I would say it can be summed up in two words. Pursue excellence and pursue integrity. Make sure that you as a Christian are doing the very best you can to get the very highest marks you can to make sure that people understand Christians work hard and Christians have integrity as well. So yeah, maybe you're going to butt heads with people because you're not willing to skip corners or to just kind of fudge the numbers or whatever it is. That integrity is essential as well. I, I mean, I've been twice an immigrant now. When I first moved from Zimbabwe to Australia and then Australia here. And when I went to Zimbabwe, I remember getting my job and the guy said, yeah, I'm going to hire you because I, I, I've, Zimbabweans have a reputation for being hard workers. And I was like, that makes sense. <laughs> they probably do. I want that to be the same but of Christians. Even as the world seems to sort of distance itself from Christianity, there should be an undeniable holiness to the way that Christians live. That people want to employ us because they're like, man, I heard Christians work really hard and are honest people. That's the kind of thing that a life of holiness will lead to. So I want to end with spending sort of five minutes talking about sort of more practical ideas of how do we get this done. And I, a lot of what I've drawn out of here is a book that I'm going to refer to a lot more next week as we wrap up the series by looking at love, love being the final expression of holiness. Uh, but it's the book called What's Best Next by Matt Perman. And uh, it's a very interesting book. 
and so more of it will come next week. But it's a productivity book. And I thought productivity and holiness really do go hand in hand because a holy life will be one that is ex exceedingly effective and productive, I believe, as well. So uh, I want to look at a couple things. And again, if this is kind of you're like, oh, man, this is what I really want is like practical tips of how to do this. Come next week. <laughs> so this is just my hook to get you back. So the first thing is uh, to look at your system. Like, how do you conduct your life? Like, what is your... like? day to day, week to week, you know, how do you go about living? And so look at your system and bear in mind to have no system is a system, okay? So it counts, it's terrible, but it counts. But also look at it and begin to question, is this the best way I can be living? Can I be living a more productive life? Can I set up my life in such a way that it could be more productive and start to ask those right questions? But as you do so, that's it again. Today I'm just going to give you questions to think about. Next week is probably going to be a bit more practical. But as you do so, think about this. Productivity is not about getting a lot done. Productivity is about getting the right things done. Okay? So a life of sort of frantic, nervous activity, of kind of going here and going there, doesn't mean that you're being very productive at all. Productivity is about getting the right things done. And so as you go about the different tasks that you do in a day, for each one, look at it and think, how does this relate to my reason for living? As a Christian, this should encompass the idea of what is God's will? This works on two levels. Number one, it'll help you to wean away tasks that are unessential. But number two, when things are difficult, it helps to know the reason why. When there are certain things that you kind of know you should be doing, but you've struggled to do them, to know deeply why it's important to do these things helps you to get the motivation to do it. So look at your life and answer the why question. Why am I, you know, why should I do this? Why should I do that? You know, what goal is it working towards? Uh, what area of God's will is it fulfilling in my life? So... You want to do the things that are most according to God's will. And so look at the roles that you have in your life. Look at the tasks which are before you and make a plan for them. Set goals for these different things. Set goals for what it means to be, you know, in my case, a husband and a pastor and a child of God and a father and all these different things that I have to do. I need to set goals for these different areas of my life. But as we do so, remember what the Bible teaches about certain things. And one of the big teachings of the Bible that is so contrary to this world is that the, the, the private things, the, the things done in solitude, are often the most productive use of our time. That's totally countercultural. When, you know, if you can't see visible fruit, if it doesn't have any actionable, you know, outcome, then just throw it away. But no, what does Jesus say? You know, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray. But when you give, do so in such a way that it's quiet. When you fast, do so in a way it's just between you and God. Why? Because that's the most authentic, meaningful, and productive way that you can pray. And so think about that. Fill your life with the most productive use of your time. To do so, if you're doing so according to God's will, will mean you're taking time to do things that are in solitude things that are done just between you and God, because that is a life of productivity, a life of holiness as a, as a result as well. So 
the last thing that uh, the book kind of points to, and, and I want to point to as well, is growth happens in the hard things. There's no escaping it. There's no way I'm going to be able to technique you uh, a plan that's going to make it easy. It's not. Holiness is hard. Fighting against the sinful impulses in our lives are hard. But that's the only way to greatness. Everything in this world that is truly valuable is hard. You want to have a good prayer life? Prayer is amazing. Prayer is one of the most valuable things you can do with your life. And it is hard. It is hard to have a good prayer life. But that's because it's so wonderful. Being a good father is hard. But it's one of the most important things you can do with your life. Everything that's valuable is hard. Growth happens in the hard things. So don't, don't run away from them. Don't wait until it's easy. Embrace the difficulty. Understand in the moment, this is the life I've chosen. It's going to take a day by day working at it to be able to achieve what I want to achieve, a life of holiness. So in conclusion, I just want to pose the question, why pursue a life of holiness? Why would you do it? Well, there's three reasons. For your own sake. Because by pursuing a life of holiness, by losing your life, you will find it. It is only by self-abdication and self-denial to a greater power, and that being God alone, that you will actually find your purpose in life, that you will attain self-actualization, freedom. Being who you were meant to be is the definition of freedom, and that is only found in following after God and pursuing a life of holiness. So do it for your own sake. Secondly, do it for the sake of others. This world is a mess. We are not powerless as we look out at this world. We are the salt and light of this world. And so if you want to help people, living a life of holiness will absolutely lead you to help people. Bringing justice and care into a hurting world, manifesting Christ in our holiness will help and heal those around us. And so we do it for them as well. And lastly, we do it for the sake of Christ. Let me say, if somebody asks you to do something, you are more or less inclined to do it based on who is the one doing the asking. For instance, if any one of you asked me, can I have $5,000? I'm pretty likely to say no. <laughs> if someone on the street asked me, can I have $5,000? I'm almost definitely going to say no. But if my parents asked me, can I have $5,000? I'll say yes, instantly, of course. You're my parents. Of course I'll do it. Remember who's asking you to be holy. It's Christ. Christ is asking you to live a life of holiness. And he's asking you not to do anything that he hasn't done himself. To lay down your life. To carry a cross. To walk the walk that he's walked before. It is him, the one who has done so much already for you. The only one who is worthy of our worship. Worthy of our trust. He is the one saying, live a life of holiness for my sake. And for him, we should do it. I want to end with a prayer by A.W. Tozer. He writes this in his book, uh, The Pursuit of God. And so, why don't you guys close your eyes, get in a prayerful position, and I want to read this. O oh God, I have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need of further grace, I am ashamed of my lack of desire, O God, the triune God. I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me thy glory. 
I pray thee that so I may know thee indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me the grace to rise and follow thee up from this misty lowland where I have wandered so long. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about us, you can find us on the website peoplesmontreal.org. There you'll find information about where and when we meet, as well as a catalogue of past sermons and other resources. Hope to see you soon. Thank you.